I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 58 of Carol Pop. This is part two of our conversation with producer, club owner, label owner, and author, Joe Boyd. In part one, we heard about his move to London in the mid-60s and his work with such acts as Pink Floyd, Fairport Convention, The Incredible String Band, and Nick Drake. As part two begins, Fairport Convention has reached its commercial and critical peak, but lead singer Sandy Denny is suddenly out. Did she jump or was she pushed? Boyd doesn't necessarily agree with guitarist Richard Thompson's answer to this question. Fairport continued with Thompson and without Denny for one more Boyd-produced studio album, 1970's Full House. Then Boyd moved to California and didn't produce Thompson again until Richard and Linda Thompson's stunning 1982 album, Shoot Out the Lights. Boyd gets into that album's strange backstory, with Jerry Rafferty of Baker Street fame first producing a weirdly slick version of that album. Boyd was able to take advantage of a contract snafu and to re-record the entire album with the same lineup for his relatively new Hannibal Records label. Considered a breakup album by almost everyone but Richard Thompson, Shoot Out the Lights was the last Richard and Linda Thompson album before the couple broke up musically as well. Boyd went on to produce Richard Thompson's next two solo albums, Hand of Kindness and Across a Crowded Room, and he explains what happened after that. Boyd's work attracted the attention of R.E.M., which was looking to try something different on its third album after working with Mitch Easter and Don Dixon on the first two. They recorded 1985's Fables of the Reconstruction in chilly London, and the bandmates did not act in the studio the way most musicians do. Boyd also produced 10,000 Maniacs' The Wishing Chair around this time and went on to work with such artists as Billy Bragg, Kate and Anna McGarrigal, Loudon Wainwright III, and Robin Hitchcock. In 2019, Boyd saw the flowering of seeds he had planted 47 years earlier. Boyd had a job in Warner Brothers' music department in the early 1970s and worked with Stanley Kubrick on the Clockwork Orange soundtrack when he was asked to oversee the making of an Aretha Franklin gospel concert film. But the studio overruled his choice of a director with concert filming experience and went with Sidney Pollack. Technical difficulties ensued. Although the album from this performance, Amazing Grace, was released to great acclaim in 1972, the film remained in the can. The movie and Boyd's story of how it was resurrected for its 2019 release are amazing as well. Boyd's Warner Brothers stint also led to the biggest hit single of his career, even though he wasn't credited by name. We'll let him tell that story. Meanwhile, I'm pretty sure the biggest hit single on which he was credited was this. Please enjoy part two of this Carol Pop conversation with Joe Boyd. Were you surprised when they fired Sandy Denny at, after Legion Leaf? They didn't fire Sandy Denny. That, um, was what, that was what Richard wrote in his book. I didn't see it that way until well, he said it. it. You know, it, there's, there's different ways you can phrase it. I mean, yes, in a way they fired Sandy Denny, but, you know, it was a very complicated situation. I think she never liked flying. She was always terrified of airplanes. And that was one factor. And then there was another factor, which was her boyfriend, who she later married, Trevor Lucas. Right. And Trevor was a you know a good Australian folk singer, big redhead hunk of a guy. 
who was, a, you know, he was a nice guy. He was a friend of mine, nice singer, and she adored him. And she'd never really had, she'd had one serious relationship with Jackson C. Frank um, some years before. But since then, she hadn't really had a steady boyfriend. And she was very insecure about her looks and her, it was tough being a woman in that world. And I think, and Trevor, she knew, she'd been around the folk circuit. She knew Trevor had pretty much shagged everybody. And that was in his nature. And the, and suddenly, before unhalfbricking, they had really just played around England, you know, in the van, up the highway, back that night. And all of a sudden, we have a deal in America with A&M. Everybody's, you know, the Legion Leaf is making this big splash. We have an offer from Scandinavia. We're being, we're playing on Danish television. The flight is tomorrow, you know, at two o'clock, be at Heathrow, you know. The combination of this daunting schedule and flying and going away for extended periods, leaving Trevor on his own in London, mm. <laughs> she didn't want to deal with it. And so the very first time when we had this Danish television date, she didn't show. And we, and luckily there was a day leeway. And I think somehow we got her out to the airport and got her to Denmark the day of the show. And she did the show. But I think it rattled the group so much and they knew her and they knew how and she was really in this kind of state. And it may have been she wasn't in the van when it crashed. She'd driven back from Birmingham with Trevor. But um, she was going through a difficult time. And I think they knew that she and she said, I don't want to go to America. I don't want to go all over Europe. And they did. And so they just said, fine, okay, you go do your thing, we'll do ours. And, you know, whether she, you could say she quit, you could say she was fired. But, um, you know, it was, it was not like she was desperate to be part of the world touring Fairport. I, and, and, you know, the same thing. And Ashley left at the same time. I mean, it was a, it was a very volatile situation. Right. And Did you think that Fairport could survive without her and Ashley Hutchins? Yeah. I mean, I thought anything that Richard did would work. Um, and then I went and, and <laughs> the funny story, which I think is in white bicycles, but, is, is I, I still love this moment. One of my favorite moments was, you know, they were auditioning bass players to replace Ashley. And by this time, Dave Swarbrick is in the band. And Dave said, listen, I have this friend in Birmingham who's a great bass player. And they said, yeah, sure, Dave. You know, because Dave is a folky. Right. And they said, who, who does he play with? And they said, oh, he plays upright bass with the Ian Campbell folk group. You know. And they said, oh, great, Dave, that's exactly what we need, not, you know. So you, you let us deal with bass players. We know bass players. You just go fiddle in the corner and we'll, you know, we'll sort out the bass player. 
And he wouldn't stop. He just kept going. My friend is great. My friend is great. He doesn't just play upright. He plays electric, blah, blah, blah. So finally, just to shut him up, they said, okay, tell him to come here at two o'clock. He's got 15 minutes or whatever. We'll try him out. <laughs> they had a rehearsal room where they were running in and bass players in and out to try. And I turned up at the, just at the moment when Dave Pegg walked in the door. And that is Swarb's friend from Birmingham. And he picks up his electric bass and they just, they take off on Matty Groves or something at like 30% faster pace than on the record. And it has these impossible bass parts that Ashley has figured out, these kind of complicated bass lines. And Peg just goes, you know, just plays it like Ashley times 10, you know, sort of the same phrasing, but more powerful, more aggressive. Um, and I love Ashley's bass playing, but Peg is a monster. And the expression on Richard and Simon's and Mattex's face, you know, when Peg <laughs> gets to the end of Maddie Groves was like so priceless. Anyway, they were, I knew they'd be fine. They were great. And they had a fantastic year and a half touring the world, having a great time, being guys on the road, drinking a lot of beer and playing like monsters. Full yeah. House is Full a strong House. record. Yeah. Just, yeah. Off. I mean, it's not as good a record as, as Legion Leaf, but they did all the Legion Leaf stuff. And Richard grew as a singer during that period of time. And, um, and they just were such a pleasure to watch live. And that, you know, the if you heard, you've heard the uh, House Full, the live right. record from the Troubadour. I mean, that that was that was so much fun. Right. And then he he broke off and did Henry the Human Fly in his albums with Linda, and then cut to what eighty the early eighties eighty one or and they've recorded yeah. they've recorded this album with Jerry Rafferty, and I've heard those I've heard a version of it, and it just sounds all wrong. And then they came back to you, and you produced Shoot Out the Lights, which is one of the yeah. great records of all time. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> it was it was that was a, I mean, running Hannibal and keeping it alive was very very stressful and not my favorite time of my life i have to say but the the the, the best time of that in a way was the shoot out the lights moment because you know i had basically started the label started as a sub label of island and i handled it rather badly i didn't some of the people at island didn't really you know blackwell was busy elsewhere I was sort of Blackwell's friend and not everybody in Ireland liked me and it didn't really work. I didn't handle it that well. I did some, I spent to overspent budgets and Chris, at the end of the year, we had a rolling year contracts. And at the end of the year, he said, I don't think this is going to work. I got too much, too many people don't want it. Don't want me to renew this deal, but I'll let you listen. You can have all the masters. I'll just, they're present from me to you. You, you own the label. It's yours if you want to keep it going. Or if you don't, if you just want to keep it in the catalog, we'll keep, keep them in the catalog. That's fine. And I said, no, no, I want to keep it going. And so I was out on my own. I had no backing, no financing. 
And I then immediately discovered that Richard and Linda had been dropped by Chrysalis. And so I called Richard and I said, let's do something. And he said, well, I don't know, Joe Lustig, their manager, has something up his sleeve. He, I think he's got a deal. So I called Joe Lustig. He said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to. I heard you lost your deal with Island. We're not going with something independent. We've got to deal with United Artists through Rafferty and, and um, Hugh Murphy. And I called Richard and I said, Richard, Jerry Rafferty and Hugh Murphy, really? Do you think that's <laughs> going to work? And, um, and he said, well, it'll be interesting. It'll be different, but it'll be interesting. I'm, it's a challenge. I think it'll work. And the irony, the fantastic weirdness of this situation is that Joe Lustig, his manager, was this American in London. It was a friend of Mel Brooks. He was a cigar-chomping guy from New York, from the Bronx, who had made a home. He managed Pentangle and Burt Jansen, all these people. And, and he somehow found his way into the British folk world. And now he's managing Richard and Linda. And he was a very abrasive guy. He and I kind of got along, but I didn't, can't say I really liked him that much. Everybody found him difficult. And so he did this deal with Rafferty and Murphy. And they grew to really dislike him. And they were trying, they were going to form this management company and production company. And Joe had drawn up this contract in which he got 25% in perpetuity of everything. And he would be locked into Richard and Linda's career for as long as they were with Rafferty and Murphy. And so Rafferty and Murphy just stalled on signing the contract. They just never did because they didn't want, they were tr trying to figure out a way to get rid of Joe Lustig. And so the contract was never done, but they made the record. <laughs> and it got to the point where they were mixing the record and Richard was arguing with him about the mix. And they finally said, Richard, leave us alone to do the mix. And Richard called me. <laughs> And he said, oh, I don't know, this is not going to... I said, well, you've already made the record. It's too late. And he said, it's not too late. We've never signed a contract. <laughs> huh. So that's how we ended up making Shadow Lights. When he recorded with Rafferty, did he... Was he using the same musicians, or did you kind of reassemble that kind of classic lineup? No, it was the same lineup. I mean, that was... I, I mean, it was so... And, you know, in another world in America, Rafferty and Murphy probably would have gotten a lawyer and sued him and me and everybody and had some reason for doing so because he'd actually gone to the studio and spent their money, even though he hadn't signed a contract. There would have been some sort of settlement. But right. they just they just slunk away because they, you know, I don't know why. I never even heard from them. But I think they'd realized that Richard wasn't for them and he wasn't for, they weren't for him or something. And they had budgets from UA. They had a big budget. Maybe they could just write it off. I don't know. But uh, it was the same rhythm section. And they knew the tunes backwards. So we could go in and make it in three days. I've heard those, the Rafferty version of it. And it's just very sort of slick and polished and surfacy. And, you know, shoot out the lights that you produced is shoot out the lights. It's just this great clear, gritty Richard Thompson and Richard and Linda Thompson record that just kind of cuts through a lot of stuff. It's it's just one of the all-time great albums. Uh, well, it was it was a dream to make because they, they knew the stuff backwards. How much had so, he grown as an artist by that point from the last time you'd worked with him? Well, I mean, you know, he went through a lot of 
phases. You know, one of the things, one of the other things that happened in between Full House and Shoot Out the Lights in the middle, because we were always in touch. You know, Linda and I were very close. We'd once been engaged. And so I was sort of, you know, still her friend. And we, you know, I I went over to their house for dinner. And, I, you know, I mean, we were we were in touch. And there was a point where he, in his becoming a Sufi, for some reason, he'd stopped playing electric guitar. He said, I'm only going to play acoustic guitar. And I got hired by Virgin to produce Julie Covington right after she'd had a big hit with um, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. And I was going to make, she, I had made a single um, with her, which actually was a minor hit in Britain, the Alice Cooper song, Only Women Bleed. And I got John Cale to do the arrangement for Only Women Bleed. And then we needed a B-side, and we had a Lowell George turn, some, some um, easy to slip. And it was going to be on the B-side. And I called up Simon Nickel. I said, could we put you guys together to back up Julie Covington on Easy to Slip? And he said, man, let's see if we could get Richard to come play electric, because he, you know, he hadn't played electric for two years. And maybe he needs the money. Maybe it would lure him, because it's such a tragedy he's not playing his electric guitar. And so... Richard, I called Richard and Richard said, okay. And he came and he played electric guitar brilliantly. And <laughs> then we got a deal to do an album. And I, I don't know why, but I got this idea in my head that the right way to do this album was with an American rhythm section, Willie Weeks, Andy Newmark, and Neil Larson, you know, which were like the top rhythm section in the world <laughs> at the right. time, almost, you know. And they said, sure. And they came over uh, to back up Julie. And I added Richard to the mix. I said, Richard, you play guitar with Willie Weeks and Andy Newmark and Neil Larson. Okay. And at the end of the first session re rehearsal, we had a rehearse, couple, few rehearsal days. Willie Weeks and Andy Newmark <laughs> took me into a corner and they said, who the fuck is this guy? Where did you get him? Who is he? He's unbelievable. <laughs> I said, you haven't heard of Richard Thompson? I said, they said, no, who the hell is that? And they were just amazed at Richard. And so we started the Julie record and I called up Joe Lustig and I said, if you don't get a deal for Richard and Linda to make a record with these guys, with Andy and Willie and Neil while they're in town. Just pay them a little more. They'll stay for another five days and do the record. And that's um, Pour Down Like Silver or First Light, First Light. Oh, I did not and know so the story that, behind that. Yeah, so that's how he got back into playing electric guitar after yeah, not been like playing for two years. Yeah, because I think it had been like three years between Pour Down Like Silver and First Light. So that was, so you smoothed the runway for his re-entry then. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he and I had a, you know, had a, a, a dialogue all this time. You know, it wasn't like we suddenly reappeared in each other's life after 10 years. Right. The, the songs in the plane on Shoot Out the Lights, I mean, they're just a step up from, you know, like First Light and Sunny Vista it just it's just, it, it was just this new kind of leap that he'd made it sound at least, at least from the listener point of view well i mean i don't know i mean richard will always deny that he was writing songs 
for Linda to sing after they broke up. Right. That he knew that they were, that this, you know, but they were having difficulties for sure. And then, you know, he did break, he did leave her between the time we did the record and the time the record came out. And the time they hit the road. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a classic breakup record that's, you know. But he yeah, always will, de- he, he always denies that. Exactly. I know. But, but yeah, you listen to it. Whatever was actually going on, certainly he was very in touch with those emotions from those songs because they cut pretty yeah. close to the yeah. bone. Yeah. What was it like working with him after that? Because you did, what, Hand of Kindness or Across a Crowded Room after that? Yeah, yeah. It was fine. I mean, was, I, mean I love working with Richard. And, and I, I understand, I mean, you know, after all, Across the Crowded Room didn't do that well. It was his first record for Polydor. And things, things got a little t- tricky, although not never bet- personal level between me and Richard, although you never know with Richard. But um, Hannibal was struggling. And the only records that were selling <laughs> were Richard's, you know. And so we ended up with a big royalty bill that we couldn't pay. And so I had him under contract for like three or four records. So I could have, Across the Crowded Room was theoretically supposed to be a Hannibal record. But I had to let him go because I was behind on the royalty payments. Mm. And he had a new manager who said, come on, Joe, you know, we don't want to, you know, we'll take, we'll allow you to pay us over time, which is what I did. I paid it on installments, you know, over the next couple of years. Um, but I couldn't hold him to the contract. And he had an offer from, he said, I, they, basically the manager said it was, it was unarguable. He said, you can't pay, you know, Richard sold all these records. You can't pay all the royalties you owe. And Polydor is offering us a big chunk of money. Are you really going to tell us you're going to try and hold him to the contract? If you do, I'm going to, sue you for the back royalties you know and so i said okay fine but how well why don't i produce <laughs> you know so in a way actually i produce it, it sort of worked out that i produced i got a fee from polydor for producing across the crowded room which went straight into hannibal and straight back to richard there you go <laughs> and um but then across the crowded room didn't really set the world alight you know it somehow didn't have quite the magic of the previous two. And um, I mean, I thought, I think it's a really good record, but it didn't. And you could say it got lost at Polydor. I don't know, but it didn't work really commercially. And so they said, Hey, Richard, Mitch Froome, that's who you need. And, and, you know, somebody, the manager said, Mitch Froom says he's he can get a much better guitar sound on Richard than you ever did. <laughs> so I said, "Oh, really? Okay." And so I listened to the subsequent albums. I never heard anything that I think could be considered a better guitar sound. But we're friends, you know. It's I mean, I everything is understandable, you know. Whatever everything that happened over the years is is completely. And I just had lunch with Richard a month ago. You know, we're all those guys are just mates. And then 85, you produced one of my favorite albums and, and one that I loved at the time. And I think 
more people have grown to appreciate over time, which was REM's Fables of the Reconstruction. The creative birth of that was a little difficult, but it's just this great atmospheric record with fantastic songs on it, in my point of view. Yeah, it was a strange experience. I mean, they're, they're an extraordinary bunch. You know, the six that I was working with, the four members of the band and the two managers at the time, were such a team extraordinary team the way that they you know you i mean you could see that they were going to conquer the world because they they're just so i don't know there was something about the way that they worked together the way they communicated the way that they addressed their you know this this weird world of rock and roll and how you you know how you do that and it was i really liked them and it was great but it was a struggle we, we booked Livingston Studios and Jerry Boys sort of at the last minute. They were in a hurry. They, want, they needed to do it at a certain, you know, quickly. And Jerry was just putting in a new board at Livingston. And so he was only in and out. And so I was working with another engineer off and on. And I felt frustrated with the sound a bit. And then when we got to the mix, Michael Stipe, he, you know, he just... He had this thing that he didn't want his voice up front. And there's only four things going on there, drums, bass, guitar, and voice. And I mixed something and Michael Stipe would say, can you pull the voice back a little bit? And then Peter Buck would say, can you pull the guitar back a little bit? <laughs> and I'd say, but guys, <laughs> you gotta have everything in relation to something. There's got to be a tent pole somewhere in this mix. There's got to be. And it was a real struggle. And I ended up feeling when the record was finished, when I turned it in, I was as f nervous as I've ever been because I really liked the first two records. You know, I thought, was it Mitch Easter? And, and right. He had, had done a very good job. And, um, and I was just petrified that this record was going to come out and everybody's going to say, Joe Boyd ruined R.E.M. And, um, and the Rolling Stone came out with a four-star review or five-star, you know, a very good review anyway. And it was like, <laughs> And it sold much better than the first two. But they didn't ask me to produce the next one. And the next one sold, you know, five times i think to their credit that when they decided to you know move on and try something new they you know again this is like 1985 yeah and there were a lot of producers who were sort of you know known for again like their 80s kind of sounds and they went with you know the guy who produced richard thompson and right. and so it, it's a it's a testament to their good taste that they went over with with you um you know, and and then afterward they went with the guy who produced Mellencamp, and so that was a much more, yeah, it's a bigger sounding record. It also has a little more of a timestamp on it because of that. Um, and they only did one record with you know Don Gaiman as well, and also they were out of their comfort zone because they came to England to record Fables yeah, of the Reconstruction. Yeah. Was yeah. What, how set were the songs when they came into the studio? Like was like what what was your impression of their they're, creative they're process? Pretty, they were pretty set. I went I went to Athens. It's it's a, there's a funny story here because I, I was at this point Hannibal was really struggling and I was struggling 
And so I'd sworn that I wasn't going to produce for other labels, only for Hannibal. But I was now I was up against it and I didn't have that option. I had to go work to raise money for the label. And so one artist I tried to sign to Hannibal that had ended up signing to Virgin was uh, Mary Margaret O'Hara. And Virgin signed her and then hired, um, what's his name, from XTC to produce her, Andy Partridge. Yeah. And, um, and so she came over with her Canadian, three Canadian musicians to Wales to work with Andy Partridge. And after two days, they called me up. It was a bit like the Richard situation. They called me up and said, help. <laughs> because he was in, you know, he was like into tracking one instrument at a time and being doing funny effects and things like that. And they were just, they were, you know, these guys used to play with, you know, I don't know, jazz bands and funk bands. And, you know, they were live players. They were Canadians. <laughs> they would jam in Canada. And and Mary Margaret likes to improvise against what they do. And the idea of laying down tracks and overdubbing vocals is completely alien to them. And so they went on strike and forced Virgin to call me up because they knew me because I tried to sign them, sign her to Hannibal. And um, and so I went out and produced the Mary Margaret O'Hara record. We recorded it at Rockfield. And the idea was we'd done all the tracks and we and most of those tracks are what ended up on Miss America. But we I was going to go to Toronto in January and mix it. And then I was going to do 10,000 Maniacs, another group that I tried to sign to Hannibal that got signed to Elektra, but I tagged along as part of the deal. And so Mary Margaret was going to go into her stu Catherine O'Hara's studio in, in Canada over the winter, over Christmas, and figure out all the harmony vocals she wanted to do and figure out the way she wanted to finish. Because everything was done except for some harmonies, we thought, and any other overdubs she wanted. And then I was going to come January 6th and start mixing. And I got to Toronto. And meanwhile, R.E.M. called me, said, would you be interested? But we got to do it quickly. I said, I got Mary Margaret to finish. And then I got 10,000 Maniacs. I could do it after 10,000 Maniacs. They said, that's too late. Too bad. So I went, oh, OK. And so I flew to Toronto. And I'm sitting with Mary Margaret in a Chinese restaurant with her and her manager. And she's telling me that she hasn't done any vocals. She hasn't figured out any harmonies. That she's got lots of new ideas. She might want to re-record some of the tracks. And I love Mary Margaret, but she's, you know, she's very eccentric. And she has her own, her own, her own um, gyroscope, you know. And, um, and while we're sitting in the Chinese restaurant, these gigantic, the biggest snowflakes I've ever seen in my life start coming down. And just in the course of one bowl of wonton soup, you know, the snow is piling up like this outside the, uh, the restaurant. And I said, you know something, Mary Margaret? And I just felt I'll never get out of Toronto. <laughs> I'll be here till, till, till the snow melts. Um, I said, you know, Mary Margaret, it sounds to me like you really want to produce this record yourself. And, um, and I called Virgin. And they hated me anyway, so they were happy to get rid of me. And um, uh, and I called REM, I called Athens, and I said, you guys still looking for a producer? 
And they said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm in Toronto. <laughs> and I'm available. <laughs> and they said, well, come on down, y'all. <laughs> and so I flew to, to Atlanta the next day. And, uh, and we went, we did demo, we did the demos that are part of the package now. And, right. Uh, and they were all the same songs. I mean, they sound pretty similar. The only three that really changed that I felt I really had something to do to put in besides getting a good track and getting a good sound and getting a good mix was Wendell G and Feeling Gravity's Pull and You Can't Get There From Here. Which right. are the three which we have other instruments on. Right. Like a string section, a brass section, and the banjo. And and those three are somehow out of the zone of straightforward rock band REM. And I had I could I felt I had something to mix there. I had something to do in the mix. And so those are the three tracks that I feel happiest listening to and um and then many years later 25th anniversary of the record i heard about this they're doing a big push on the record 25th anniversary so i said hey guys let me remix it <laughs> and we they let me chew two tracks and it sounded pretty cool with just a little bit more voice and a little bit more guitar but they have to do everything unanimously. They're very democratic. They're very right. everything to be unanimous. And one guy, one of them, I don't know who, said no. I, I think it's, it's a time. It's, it happened in its time. It's of that time. There it is. That's history. That's the record. And I was a bit disappointed. And then it was remastered. And they sent me a promo, advanced promo of the remastered version. And it's fantastic. It's one of the best jobs of remastering I've ever heard. Mm. Because somehow the remastering engineer found that frequency to just beef up the voice a little bit and beef up the guitar a little bit and just bring it just that tiny bit more out front. And so it now sounds like I wished it sounded at the time. And it's very slight, it's very nuanced, but it's, it's um, I'm, I was very pleased. I was looking back at your resume and you're talking about the 70s being this kind of not great time. And you produced or co-produced Midnight at the Oasis, Maria Muldauer, uh, married to your friend Jeff Muldauer. Was that the biggest hit that you produced? Um... Yeah, I think probably. I think that's probably the biggest hit. Actually, the biggest hit I ever produced, I don't get any royalties on, and I didn't get my name on the label. <laughs> but I did produce it, uh, Dueling Banjos. Oh, right. You know, I, that's a whole... See, so you just have too much going on. Yeah, the whole thing with you working on uh, Dueling Banjos and uh, for Warner Brothers, and you worked with Stanley Kubrick to put together the soundtrack to... Yeah. Uh, Clockwork Orange, which is which yeah. is amazing. Well, I mean, with Clockwork Orange, you, it's like yes, Stanley, no, Stanley. Anything you say, Stanley. It's not like here, Stanley. Let me take over and do something. No, you just do what Stanley wants. Right. But dueling banjos, you put together that track, basically. Well, basically, what happened was um, John Borman was making Deliverance at, the, at Warner Brothers, and I was the head of the music department then at the film company. And he came to see me, and he had a cassette. 
that he'd somehow gotten a copy of a record that he heard on the radio in the South, and it was dueling banjos. So it was his idea. And he said, this is what I want this as the theme. I'm gonna, uh, there's a live scene where it's going to be played in the movie, and then I want the soundtrack to the movie to be this same melody, minor, major, fast, slow, you know, whatever. So I need a banjo player who can do that. And I said, I know just the guy, Bill Keith. And so he said, great. Okay, well, here's when we, we need it in two months or in a month from now. And, you know, and so I just got on the phone immediately. As soon as he, the next day I got on the phone, and I tracked down Bill Keith. Where is he? Oh, he's on tour in Europe. I think actually the, the timeline, the turnaround was much quicker. It was like, I, he, we had to do this in like three weeks or four weeks, three weeks, something like that. And I finally found Bill. He was playing pedal steel for Karen Dalton. Mm. And they were in Ireland. And I don't know how I did it, but I found the number of the, of the backstage at a club where they were playing in Dublin or Galway or something. And, um, and I got Bill on the phone, who I knew from Boston. You know, a lot of he played on records, you know, Jeff and Maria Muldor record and, and um, uh, Mule Skinner. Well, that was later. That was later. But uh, Jeff and Maria Mulder, I mean, I'd known him from Cambridge. I knew him forever. And so I said, hey, Bill, you got to come, you know, you got to be in Atlanta in three weeks to do this thing for, with me for this film. And he said, how much money is in it? And I said, 2,000 bucks. And he said, you know something? I've met this very nice girl here and she's invited me to come stay with her in Cork. And um, I don't really have to be back for anything else for a month or a month and a half or something. Get Weisberg to do it. He'll be fine. <laughs> so I said, no, Bill, Bill, come on, come on. No, Joe, no, no, no. And I said, well, you know, is it traditional? Is the song traditional? He said, I don't know, maybe. I said, well, you know, if it's traditional, we can copyright your arrangement of it. You'll be another thousand bucks in composer royalties. He said, I like this girl. She's pretty cute. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, I, so I called up Eric Weisberg. And Weisberg came down, did it, and the rest is history. Well, the thing was, we did it. And, we're, you know, he was, Boorman was delighted. And it all worked great. And then he got, he said, we got to put this out as a single. And I used to go over every week to the A&R meetings across the street at the record company and tell them what was going on with the, with the new films and stuff like that. And so I played them dueling banjos and they all looked at me like, you what? You want us to put this out as a single? Really? Are you drunk? And, and basically I came back with my tail between my legs and I said to Boorman, I said, record company won't do it. He got furious and he went to Ted Ashley, who was the head of the film company. And Ted Ashley summoned Mo Austin across the street and me and Lenny Warrenker. And we all, you know, and Mo and Lenny wouldn't budge. Hmm. They said, the A&R committee is the A&R committee. I'm not going to second guess them. If they say it's not a single, it's not a single. Our promo people have heard it. They don't see there's any point. So well, the best we can do is give you some white label copies, you know, promo copies, but we're not going to, we're not going to do official release. And Ashley was furious and Borman was beside himself. 
And I got, we got like 500 white label singles pressed up. Just promo only, you know, promo thing. And I gave a box of them to Boorman and he was headed off to start doing radio, NPR. He was going to Minneapolis to do, you know, Minneapolis, whatever that station is, you know, where Garrison Keillor is, was. That was on a Monday. He left on a Monday to do this show. Tuesday morning, I was sitting in my office. And I, you know, because of this whole thing, it was all like in a hurry and it was all awkward. And it was just a promo thing. I, I just gave them the title. I didn't put my name on it. My contract says that I wasn't entitled to any royalties on anything I did because I was being paid as an executive and I couldn't mm. get shares of anything. So I said, fuck it. You know, I don't need my name on this thing. It's just a promo, stupid promo thing. So Tuesday morning, I got a call from this guy who's in the Warner Music, Warner, we, uh, whatever, warehouse in Burbank saying, I'm looking for a record number 36724. And somebody says, you might know what this is. And I'm looking at it. There's a copy of the Dueling Banjos promo thing on my desk. And I look at the number and it says 36724. I said, yeah, I know what that is. That's a promo thing for this film. He said, well, do you know where I can get some more copies of it? I said, why? He said, well, I just had an order for 5,000 from the Minneapolis branch. <laughs> and this was 24 hours after Boorman had left L.A., and played it once wow. on Minneapolis radio. And I just went right across the street and I said, guys, <laughs> it's time for a U-turn. How many copies of that did it end up selling? I don't know, millions. So yeah, I mean, it's this, I, I, I hate the word iconic, but it's this iconic song at this point, so. Yeah. And of course, Weisberg, I hold up my hand, it was, I didn't stop him, claimed, arranged, trad, arranged Weisberg. And the Warner Music published it. And then, of course, Arthur Smith came out of the woodwork and said, well, excuse me, I wrote that. And by that time, I'd left Warner Brothers by the time all this came up, and there was a huge amount of money at stake. And I went and testified for Arthur Smith. And I said, we, we, you know, it's just, it's, just a, it's just an arrangement of your song. You know, you obviously have clear title to it. But by that time, Weisberg had made huge amounts of money and the copyright had generated all this money for Warner Music and they fought, which I thought was reprehensible. But they mm. settled and Arthur Smith got a lot of money. A lot of the, the history of music is like this kind of clash between creativity and commerce, it seems like. Like it's always kind of coming up. Well, you know. It's a healthy clash, usually. The Amazing Grace film, which came out finally, like decades later, that you were pretty much with, with Aretha Franklin, that you were pretty much responsible for and, and basically saw as the sort of like end of this era of, of music or a certain type of music, which because I read an well, essay that you wrote on your site about it and it was fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 it was at that same time of building banjos. It was when I was in that office, Atlantic called up and said, Aretha's going to make a gospel record in a church. Do you want to film it? And we said, yeah. And I got together a 16 mil crew that knew how to film music. And we were all set to go. We were drawing up the papers. And I got a call from Ted Ashley saying, great news. Really? <laughs> great news? What is it? Had dinner last night with Sidney Pollock. He's a huge Aretha friend. 
he's going to make, he's, he'll direct the, the film. I said, and I really do, I do really clearly remember this. I said, Ted, are you sure that's a good idea? Filming live music is a very different thing than making a dramatic feature film. Uh, Joe, what are you talking about? This is Sidney Pollack. And, you know, he's seeing the, the, the poster, you know, the, the package. It was a great package. Sidney Pollack directs Aretha Franklin. But then Sidney Pollack came in, took over. He had a producer. He had a team. He had everything. And they didn't get the sound synced. And they couldn't edit the film. And I, you know, so I didn't really have anything to do. And then years later, I was on a book tour for White Bicycles. And I, I got an email from Alan Elliott. He said, I've got Amazing Grace. Do you want to have lunch? And I went and had lunch with Alan Elliott. And, you know, Alan went charging ahead like a bull in a china shop and made that film. And if everybody had waited until all the I's were dotted and all the contracts and all the permissions obtained, it never would have been made. And he did a brilliant job. I had nothing to do with it. I just helped him get it released somehow which was a real struggle but it it was worth it in the end because it's a fantastic document of a fantastic moment of one of the great performances you'll ever see on film what was your reaction seeing it having been there so many years earlier and then just not having seen any of the footage for so long i thought it was fantastic i was i was in tears you know I, and I, you know, when we were showing the film around and trying to get festivals and trying to get distribution deals and promoting it and everything, I would go to screenings just to make sure the sound was loud enough and the sound was right. And, you know, I would have plans of what to do after that. And I would never leave. I would watch it. I must have seen it 50 times. You could never leave the room. It was just too gripping. Yeah, you wrote, I now see the film as the final bow of a way of making music perfected by an extraordinary generation of music makers with the skills and influences that bounced back and forth between African-American secular and religious music. Yeah. A few years later, she was singing Who's Suman Who. That's all for episode 58 of Carol Pop. Thanks again to Joe Boyd for going so deep into such an incredible, far-reaching career. From Fairport Convention and Nick Drake through Richard and Linda Thompson and R.E.M., Boyd has been behind some of my favorite albums. For a soundtrack to this episode, Richard and Linda Thompson's Shoot Out the Lights is an all-timer. And Richard Thompson's Boyd-produced follow-ups, Hand of Kindness and Across a Crowded Room, include staples of his live shows. I also recommend listening to R.E.M.'s Fables of the Reconstruction at night on a train if you can. Don't forget to seek out Boyd's book, White Bicycles, Making Music in the 1960s, and we'll keep an eye out for his upcoming book about world music and Western culture. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who can get there from here. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. And visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.